Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Searching for Political Identity. I am your host, Brian Eskow, and you have arrived at episode 117. My guest this week is a gentleman named Juan Dominguez, a distinguished Army veteran and business leader who is running for U.S. Senate in Maryland as a Democrat. So I asked him to tell me a little bit about his really storied military career, what he's learned about leadership, and why he's a Democrat. And in terms of policy, we really sank our teeth into this wealth tax that he supports. So I'm not going to lie, he's pretty persuasive. And I came away from this conversation swinging back towards the left a little bit. So check it out. Let me know what you think. Uh, you know where to reach me on X at Brian Eskow. So thank you for being here. And I hope you enjoy this one later. Mr. Dominguez, thank you so much for being here. Brian, it's my pleasure. I've looking, been looking forward to this all day. Yeah, so through the world of social media, someone representing you found me, you know, there's through some agency that's helping you out, and it's a perfect fit. You're a serious person running for a serious office, so this is truly an honor for me. You have an impressive story steeped in military background, and it seems like you're kind of a highly, you just have had a highly respected military career. You just seem like a executive-minded, solid guy. So looking to hear that story, who is Juan Dominguez and uh, why is he running for one of the highest offices in the land as a Democrat? You think we could cover that? I think we can. All right, sir. So you graduated, did you, you graduated West Point in 89? Is that right? I did. That was the year I was born. So hey, thanks, Brian. We're, we're off to a great start. <laughs> so, but you wouldn't look at you look, you look really quite young, actually. How old are you? I'm 56. It's, 56. Uh, good, no uh, shit. Yeah, good, looking... good Cuban. My 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 mom has good Cuban genes. Yeah. So you keep good, in great shape, obviously, too. Take good care of your health as well. We try. Like. Yeah. It's yeah. Because imp- your bio, yeah. you're you're like a. Are you a triathlete or are you just a marathon guy? I you know I'm triathlon light. Some of what they mm. call like the sprint uh, or triathlons, the short ones. I've done did a couple of those. Almost drowned uh, on my first one, but that's a whole other podcast. Uh, mm. The the only guy I passed in the swim had a noodle you know those little noodles that you, <laughs> <laughs> how, how well the swim your was. finest moment right yeah and when i passed him he's like keep going man i was like oh, this is bad. <laughs> um but uh, 11 marathons to my credit that i think is really uh more of my sweet spot and i hope at the age of 60 that my age and my time intersect so that i could finally qualify for the boston marathon mm. well it's amazing you you really do you know i don't even see a gray hair on your head and it looks real so I don't know. Maybe you've either got the best hair dye or it's it's real. No, no, there's a little bit of gray up here. I That's think it's amazing. more my I think it's more my kids than um than <laughs> politics. Right. But uh, yeah. So you got two kids. I'm just kind of quoting from your bio. You got two kids, sure. a beautiful wife. Um, you're active. Why are you running for office? Maybe we'll start there. You know, thank you for the question. Uh I was a town councilman in my hometown. It seems like a lifetime ago, right? You mentioned uh, that you were born when I graduated college. And so a few years after that, a few years after I got out of the army, I ran and won a town council seat in my very small uh, working class town of Bogota, New Jersey. And um, I served a term, I ran for another office and I lost. And frequently uh, for politicians, I guess not some of them, but uh, not all of them, but some of them, I, it kind of, you know, it was the first time I had really lost something that was of significance in my life. And I worked really hard and it didn't matter. Sometimes the universe 
mm. conspires against you. I put it on the shelf. I got married. I had kids. And, you know, probably like yourself, there's always conversations with friends and family about, oh, you know, we could do this better or the country needs to go in a better direction, what have you. And finally, uh, January of this year, I, I wish my New Year's resolution had been to, I don't know, run another marathon. Yeah, you don't have any weight to lose. <laughs> right. But instead of something more normal, uh, to be honest, I, I, I had a calling. I, I felt like probably for the first time in my life, I had a direct conversation uh, with God. I believe in God. If, if you don't, that's okay. But I felt like um, I had a constant conversation for a couple of months about, hey, you need to be doing something different. You need to be doing something uh, different with your talents. And I went to my wife and I said, hey, I've got this calling and uh, I think I want to run for the U.S. Senate in uh, Maryland. At that time, the seat was not open yet. So I was going to challenge the incumbent in a, in a primary. And she said, well, I'm glad you're having this conversation with God, but it's going to take more than more than a couple of conversations to convince me. So we talked for several months, the pros and cons. We had a family meeting. And finally, we decided that this is what I should do. And if I'm honest, Brian, it was because I thought I could contribute something more, but I didn't know what that contribution was. And in the last six weeks or so, it's really crystallized for me. My purpose for running is to help the 37% of Marylanders, roughly, and Americans that struggle to pay their bills every month. Um, there's 25% of people at or below the poverty rate. Add another 12% that you know are torn between, hey, do I pay for the gas, the electric, the cable, the the rent? Uh, and sometimes that doesn't leave enough food for the kids, you know, or or healthy food options. And I was like, you know what? In this land of plenty, enough is enough. That's why I'm running for this office to help everyone, but particularly those people. So I don't know if this is true, but I think it's helpful in a lot of ways for so many people to think about things in terms of economic issues and social issues. Right. Yep. And maybe there's more than that, but, you know, maybe self national defense, whatever. But are, do you feel like you're more of an economic issues guy? Um, the way you broke it down is just right. I think you can talk about economics. I talk I call them kitchen table issues. Then there's the social bucket. I think, you know, um, the military can fall kind of in either of those. But I really focus my candidacy on those economic issues. So it's about a, a fair and living wage for every American worker, um, closing the um, income equality gap, health care for all, and trying to provide a debt-free college experience uh, in state for as many people that want it and great options outside of college, be it training in the trade, unions, those types of things. So that's the core of what I talk about. I do think there are many social issues that are important. I also think that those are the things that really are divisive and divide us. Mm -hmm. So I'll answer questions straight away about social issues, and I'll try to come right back to those economic issues. I think until you close that income inequality gap, it's mm -hmm. really hard to address climate change, right? We're, we're only playing with 60 uh, 63% of the team, because the other 30%, 7% are struggling to pay their bills. They're, they're mm. not on the climate change train. Right. right? And you can look at any issue, and I think you can safely say that those people that are struggling aren't as concerned with some of the social issues that suck up all the oxygen. Right. You would think it's um, a luxury to be concerned with some of these social issues. And that may be true. 
And I, th- I think you bring up a really good point. They're, they tend to be the divisive ones. And so some many will say that's by design. Hey, the puppet string masters don't want us focusing on the economic issues and how much we have in common there. So maybe that's it. And for that reason, I do want to ask you kind of the why behind your various economic policy positions. Sure. And uh, so maybe I should just do that now. But I but I did want to to kind of put a button on this cultural thing and say that it is really divisive right now, it sure isn't is. it? Yeah. I mean, it's. it's- um, so I'm a West Point grad, right? You think you reach out to West Pointers and I had this beautiful email that's like, hey, we're not red, we're not blue, we're gray, we're shades of gray, right? Because that's West Point, that's our color. Thinking, hey, it's going to be easier to raise money with my West Point alumni than any other group. because that's We're a very tight alumni association. There's only 50,000 living graduates, which doesn't sound like a lot until, you know, that's what goes to school sometimes in, in one college in one year. And I got an email back from one gentleman in Florida that I sent a, a, a request just to chat about potentially supporting my candidacy. And he's like, you're running as a Democrat? You mm. sit and die. <laughs> that's what he, yeah, that's you know, that's right. so interesting. And maybe we should spend another two minutes on this before yeah. we jump into the economic stuff, because so many people are there, at least on the right. And me kind of stuck in the middle. I sense that. I feel that. You know, I studied critical race theory in law school in my final year of law school when I launched this podcast. So it was mm-hmm. that that was the the match that lit the fuse for me. You know, it all had been building. But there is a, con- you know, and Vivek talks about it a lot, this lack of identity and American purpose. Do you agree with that, that there is this among young people, maybe whether you want to call it American hatred or an ignorance of what it means to be an American or a lack of identity? Do you sense that as a problem at all? I think that because of the divisiveness uh less people and these are you know statistics that are borne out say by axios and other i think very credible news agencies that uh say the highest amount of distrust uh it's about 70 percent of americans or more both parties distrust the government right uh more and more people feel less patriotic more and more people feel less spiritual so don't I, i don't think it's a condemnation of young people i think it's just when we were growing up there was only so many options available to you right um from an information perspective right we kind of did what our parents told them to do and there's so many opinions and points of view that are out there and available it's like a it's like a chinese buffet and um i think sometimes people just go down certain roads because it's cool or because you know, they want to rebel against parents in a different way. But, you know, it's, um, I, I think it's across all ages and all de- demographics, all those things that we talked about, less trust, less patriotism. Yeah. And part of my candidacy is to try to figure out, hey, how do we get people talking? How do we get people united? How do we get people feeling? That they're at least on the same page, if not in the same paragraph. We're all human beings. I, I like that analogy. We're all on the same page, if not on the same paragraph. That's great. Uh, I, I think it has to start there, right? Foundationally, someone uh, told me once, the best way to solve a problem, Brian, is as opposed to me and you being on opposite sides of the table, we have opposite points of view. Let's pretend we're on the same side of the table. We put the problem or the challenge on the other side, and we try to figure out, hey, where do we have common ground? How would we attack this as a team? And, and I think that's a basic fundamental premise. When I talk to people that I hear what they have to say, even if I violently disagree and I, and I think and reflect and say, Hey, is there any kernel here that I can hang on to that, um, 
that makes me understand this person's point of view better. Yeah, I love that um, image of, of the tables. Then, of course, people are going to disagree on what the problem is. So I do see, I do think that people have more common than they think. They just disagree on how to get there. They agree that the education system is a mess, but they don't agree with the Democrat solution versus the Republicans. They, and it's a lot about centralization, decentralization. So we can talk about themes all day, but why don't we talk about uh, something, you know, one of the issues that you're really passionate about, maybe healthcare. Or, well, you know what? Let's start which off one? with uh, with my Robin Hood and poverty um, uh, wealth tax and my Robin Hood and poverty dividend. So the concept is very simple. Um, we've had the largest transfer of wealth over the last 40 years from the middle class to the top 1%. Trickle down economics, we can go to all the textbooks. It just doesn't work, right? The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and the middle class become eviscerated. So the wealth gap's never been bigger. Three Americans have more wealth than 50% of Americans, right? I mean, think about that for That's a staggering, staggering number. Three, three people have more wealth than 50% of the people. Second data point in today's numbers, um, 40 years ago, an average worker made 30,000, CEO made 600,000 using today's dollars. Same worker today, 30,000. What do you think the average CEO pay in our country is? Is it like 15 million? 10 million, clo 10 clo million. close enough, right? And yeah. uh, $10 million, that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, and so our plan would impose a 2% wealth tax on anyone with a um, positive net worth of 10 million to 1 billion and a 6% tax on a billion and above. And that would be reinvested in qualifying Marylanders and Americans. I, I usually break the scale at about 37% in Maryland dual household that's 60,000 single household 30,000 everyone at that number and below would get a thousand dollar check no government program no government inter intervention check right to them to spend on food to spend on rent to spend on college to spend on maybe starting a business there's no faster way to address the income inequality gap than that dividend um, that robin hood and poverty dividend you want to build mm -hmm. better schools or a better school system? It's going to take years. You want to build uh, more low-income or government-subsidized housing? We start building tomorrow. It's going to be four years from now, right? So all of that stuff, great ideas. Mm -hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., before he was assassinated. Justice delayed, de delayed is justice denied. That's right. And, right. and he was moving from the kind of social inequality or the racial inequality income inequality and that's what he was going to work on next it mm. was the last thing that franklin delano roosevelt was going to work on before he passed and so you know i don't know I, I don't put myself in the same league by any means of those two those two heroes however i do think we have to several of us have to pick up that torch and try to get that done for the benefit mm. not only of the people that are suffering but brian there's plenty of studies that show throughout history when that racial uh, excuse me when that income inequality gap gets too large, you have revolution or you have a police state. And, um, you know, January 7th, yeah. other, other flashpoints in the more recent past, it's not just because people feel that they were denied an election. It's because people are angry with their economic state in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you make a pretty damn good argument for saying, hey, guys, step back from the insanity 
of the politics of the Trump era and then the Biden era, which is bizarre as well. And look at the big trend line. And 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 that's, I guess, why you're a Democrat, because you believe this trend and, you know, it's catastrophic if we don't do something about it. And I like the idea of a wealth tax because it, like you said, there's no bureaucracy. There's no bureaucracy yeah. and there's no government. But the so the only objection I could think of is from the Republican side would be not that there's a bureaucracy or that it's more government, but that it's not constitutional. Is that is that an objection? And what's your response? It, it's a it's a great question. Uh, and so there's a couple of ways to approach this. Right. I like to be a, a team player. So I would love to get elected, go up and have a meal with my re- Republican colleagues, you know, very early on to, to build some relationships and try to win 60 votes in the Senate. Right. Um, so that you break any filibuster, et cetera. So year one, I would be all about, hey, let's try to make the system work. The system doesn't work like it hasn't in the last 40 years, really. Then I would be for budget reconciliation. If the Democrats control the House and the Senate, you don't need 60 votes. You need 51 votes in the Senate, and you can pass that through the annual budget reconciliation process, the wealth tax. The American Bar Association has weighed in saying that those are one of the things in the Constitution, revenue generation, which can be passed uh, through the budget process. So that's how you get it done. We've got to just attack the greed. And I'll tell you this, there's a lot of rich people that I've spoken to making phone calls. I call all demographics half the day. And I would say 50% of the wealthy people that this would apply to said, you know what, I'm on board with that. I should pay more. I look at Mm. it as an insurance policy. If you're very wealthy, doesn't matter how many yachts, how many islands, how many houses you have. If society breaks down because people are tired of being poor and struggling, doesn't matter how much money you have. Uh, so I would say it's it's, it's worth it's a, it's a, it's a cost of hey guys, it's cost of doing business. You want to continue to be the top of the game, kick it in. Great way of looking at it. I I, I it's a strong argument. I think ultimately that's probably going to prevail in my soul. You know what I mean? Do you think that? People say on the left, oh, all these academic arguments against things like the wealth tax and other progressive ideas have been formulated. Do you think um, the Federalist Society, these right wing people, do you think it's mostly greed or do you think there's a legitimate academic perspective that guides them? I think there are some academics and economists that are so steep in their in what they've studied all their life, that they really believe this, right? And I think there was a short period of time where there might have been some economic expansion during the Reagan era. But if but if you really look back, the middle class was shrinking then, and it was really Wall Street that benefited, right? When we deregulated various industries, et cetera. I think the only thing that's keeping us from, uh, from this is greed. And uh, for some politicians, that means, hey, I might think that this is a great thing to do, but I'm beholden to rich um, contributors and donors. And so no matter what I think, I can't go against that because I'm just worried about getting reelected. I think somewhere along the line, a certain percentage of elected officials have made this about them and being in a club. And I'll tell you right now, I win this seat. I'm going up there for one term. I don't need a second term. And if I can get, with the help of others, significant things done, help working class and middle class people and ultimately all americans i don't need to have another term in any club if i can't get it done 
then you know what? I should step out of the way and let someone else give it a try. I think six years is more than enough time mm. to address two or three big needs in our country and get it going on a different path. You heard it here first. I haven't said this in a speech, Brian. One term. To make yeah, no, that's guy. um. Look, man, uh, sir, forgive me. Uh, <laughs> it's that's powerful, and I do think you strike me as as that guy as a very strong, effective leader, just like kind of your bio talks about. Maybe I can go back in time now. Um, yeah. Have you always been this guy, bold leader? No, uh, and you can call me man anytime. Okay, we're we're friends. Um, and that's my, my friends say, oh, wow, how's it going to be calling you senator? Every person only needs to call me senator one time, like on inauguration day. And then it's Juan. Okay? That's it. I'm not, I'm right not on. For titles. So going back, I would say I played a lot of sports and I was led by great coaches and teachers in high school. I, I have a coach, Jay Mahoney, my basketball coach, that if he ran in right now, Brian, into my office and he said, Juan, we're going to jump. At, well, I'm in the basement. But if he said, we're going to jump out this th third story window, I wouldn't hesitate. I'd be like, you know what? He knows what he's talking about. Let's go. Right. That's the type of teamwork and fire he instilled in his players. So I learned a lot about leadership from him. And then at West Point and then throughout my time in the Army, it's like you're molded into a piece of clay that you ultimately come out as your own little leader at the end of West Point and throughout your Army career. But you're shaped by other leaders and you're shaped by your enlisted leaders, your sergeants, and you're shaped by your soldiers. The reason I think I became a pretty good leader in the military was I failed thinking I was Napoleon and doing things my way. You learn certain things at West Point and the first time we went out to a field exercise, my sergeant said, all right, sir, how do you want to set this up? I was like, you know, we're going to do the reverse Napoleonic defense. And they all looked at each other like, what is this guy talking about? We, we dig foxholes in defensive positions. And I was like, nope, trust me, this will work. Our position was overrun by the fake enemy in like 22 seconds, right? And after I got chewed out by the person that evaluated the exercise, my sergeants came up and said, hey, sir, do you want to maybe, uh, you know, uh, in, involve us in the, in the planning process from now on? I said, absolutely. The biggest lesson that I ever learned was these gentlemen had so much experience and if I just learned from them, they helped me get better. So, um, so it was those people, my soldiers that came from every socioeconomic and racial background. Uh, it was an honor to help form them into a team that we then took into from Saudi Arabia into Iraq, all the way up to the Euphrates River Valley. I think it was, I don't know, 1,200 miles or something like that. So long, maybe not that far, but it, it was pretty long. And uh, we did a back sweep against the Republican Guard. And it was seven months of training every day that led us to be able to do what we did, thankfully, with no loss of life to my to my to my soldiers. So um, I think that's what shaped me uh, throughout wow. my career. Various leaders, and then and then that leadership learning continued, specifically uh, in business. And I'll tell you, when I le left my last job. I had 600 people who reported to me. I had five direct reports. And on the day that I left, we did a virtual little cocktail party. And they invited over 40 leaders from my team onto the, onto the virtual thing. And they put together this beautiful PowerPoint about how I wasn't about numbers. I was about supporting them and helping them get better. I mean, like it brought a, you know, a tear to my eye. And what I finally learned as I stepped away from that job to run for this was, hey, let people lead let people 
get to the objective their own way, help them break through things, uh, be there for them as a resource or to run things by you when they struggle. But man, I just gave those five the ability to go do amazing things and they and their teams delivered. So that's what I learned. I wish it wasn't in my last my last uh, job. Uh, I wish it had come 20 years earlier, but um, it was a great kind of arc where you think you do it all by yourself and then you think you're pretty good. And then you realize that, wow, if I have a good team, we can do amazing things. Yeah, I guess it's all about people, whether it's, you know, I work for an amazing guy. Many of us marvel at how he deals with people. And he once said, you know, people are your biggest assets, you know, that you you got to you got to take care of people (laughs) you know most of your money is going to their salary even in that regard so you might as well just it really benefits a leader to to be respected and respect and so all of that yeah the best thing uh, the best thing i ever heard about leadership was colin powell said that the definition of leadership is the ability to take your team further than the science of management would say you could right so the science of management says you have this much stuff you have this much people you have this much time you can get to this level. Leadership is, hey, how much more can you get to? Um, like being that quarterback that raises the whole play of the team. Boom. Yeah. 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 Pretty cool. I feel there's always a football so great. You can always make a football analogy. You really can. So regarding people, populism, that's a buzzword. Yeah. It would seem like there's a lot of room for agreement on that populism front between the left and the right. Josh Hawley, I think, uh, who... Uh, hopefully is going to be one of your colleagues soon once once you get in what do you think about his move to to shutter citizens united and and broadly on populism do you think there's a lot of room to work with uh, maga republicans on some issues so let's take citizens united first i think that um it was interesting i i was listening to a podcast today while i was in my rv going to montgomery county excuse me uh prince george's county here in uh, maryland where i was campaigning and the thesis about the income inequality and the growth of people that have $10 million or more, like in the last five years, it's been 10x the pace of what it was throughout history, right? And um, what they said was very interesting that as more and more money goes to the wealthy class, they have more and more power because the number of Congress people and senators has not changed. Right. So you've got this pool of politicians and it used to be that they'd get this much money. But now the pool of money has gotten bigger and the pool that it goes to has stayed the same. So that concentration of the influence that wealthy donors can buy is disproportionate. And in some cases, wrecks or um, leaves our democracy damaged. I'll tell you, I'm running against a gentleman, nice person who has several hundred million dollars in net worth. He loaned himself $10 million in the first quarter of our race, and he has spent it all already. I've raised $400,000, which I think is pretty good for someone that's not an elected official, but you know, you're, you're competing against that and trying to get that name recognition up against that. You let us compete dollar for dollar with some type of public finance, um, uh, uh, federal, you know, some federal program to limit campaign spending. You give him a million dollars, you give me a million dollars, we could put all that money back towards helping people that really need it. And uh, I think I'll beat him, you know, 10 times out of 10. 
that's the first part you were talking about. Yeah. Now talk to me. Uh, re, re, so re, Josh re, Hawley bringing that up, it was kind of interesting coming from a MAGA Republican. Yep. What do you think about those guys? Uh, do do they have some good idea? Do they share some um, philosophical ground with you on economic issues? Do you think? They probably share some economic um, some ground with me on on economic issues. I think. Listen, when we talk about MAGA Republicans, I think it's different to talk about to talk to to. I think it's different to put people in different places, right? There are people that are labeled MAGA that are arch conservative, no tax. We don't want to raise the budget, but on social issues, they may be more moderate than than, than we know. The it's the MAGA folks that denounce uh, hate or or that you know that are about hate and discrimination and uh, putting people against each other um, that are the real threat. And then, you know, the extreme left has some challenges uh, as well. So I think anytime you're in those extreme camps, Republican or Democrat, we get further and further away from coming together, uniting and getting things done. I don't know if that completely answers. Yeah, no, it does. Maybe these are people, because I don't think that, I I have a hard time finding a lot of people on them who are considered MAGA that I think, oh, that's a bad person, or I don't like that person. Maybe they're just too focused on cultural issues sometimes. I think sometimes it's just a, listen, there was a reason Donald Trump got elected in 2016. And and, uh, I've always been transparent when I've talked to people about this. The reason Donald Trump got elected is because many working class Democrats felt that the Democratic Party abandoned them on economic issues at the expense of social issues, right? I think all the social issues that we could have talked about today and might still touch on are important. But when people can't make ends meet or struggle and have to work two yeah. or three jobs, that's why that those swing voters in those swing states ultimately went to Donald Trump in 2016 because they said, hey, enough's enough. Uh, I want to give someone else a chance. Now, by all, by all results, it did not end well. However, that's not to say it can't happen again. And that's that's the danger. There's a lot of people on the left that are like, oh, he can never win. He can never win. Can win um, because it only takes a small percentage of disaffected people in the swing states, an economy that's not doing great right now, high inflation and a Democratic electorate that is not enthused about uh, uh, President Biden. And, you know, uh, we need to work to get out the vote and get our people to the polls or 2016 can repeat itself. Yeah, and uh, we don't need to spend any more time talking about that. It's a whole separate thing. You're, we're here to yep. talk about your candidacy. But, um, oh, yeah, so it's a good point. Trump, people just said, we got to give this guy a shot. He's different and because what's happening isn't working for us. That was the overall vibe. What's happening isn't working for us. You're exactly right, Brian. That's, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. So so you're not, a, you're not afraid to lob a critique at the Democratic uh, Party as a whole and say, hey, guys, you you have abandoned the working class person. I think some Democrats have abandoned, uh, well, it started with Bill Clinton's move to the center, started that movement. And then arguably, I think Barack Obama was thwarted in certain things that he wanted to do to to uh, advance an even more progressive agenda. And then, you know, Hillary, unfortunately, was or was cast in the same die as Bill Clinton. And it's the same people, the same union people that I speak to on the camp- campaign trail that say, Juan, we abandon the Democratic Party because they abandon us on economic issues. And and hmm. so it's not it's not that the social issues drove them away. 
it's that the lack of it's interesting because i the vibe i get is like that it's social issues but it's probably economic issues underneath that the people that it's they probably don't even realize but do you not feel like things were better under trump i i know we're not supposed to talk we're not here to talk about that but there was a there was an air so i don't know maybe we need fresh leadership for 2024 maybe that's you might agree with well, that. You know, I would say this. I would say that um, I would never run for an office over the age of 70. And I think that's great advice for any one of our leaders. Right. I think you're seeing that in the polls right now. President Biden is a great American. He's been in office for 50 years. I think he should be challenged in a primary. I'm not saying he's not up to the task, but there are people that critique every person that has thought about or, or might still run against him. And I'm like, hey, in a, in a in a country of 330 million people, we should have five people running for president on the Democratic side, even if it's a sitting president, and let their record speak for themselves. Yeah, you know, I speak to a lot of libertarians, and there's this one thought leader that I that I met on Twitter. I know how funny that sounds, but he's a pretty bright guy. He's not a Democrat, and he's not a Republican either. But my point is, I think there's a lot of agreement along across the board that whether it's term limits or something that money, getting the money out of politics, that, that this is not healthy. I think there is not overarching healthy. agreement. And I think someone running for office can be successful focusing on um, like what you're doing, the positives and what, what you can fix and what you can talk about. Honestly, it's a it's a tough climate out there. I don't uh, envy you, but it seems like you're doing an absolutely amazing job. Well, really. I appreciate that. Uh, I, we're, we're breaking through more and more uh, every day. I'll send you a little clip after this. I can email it to you uh, that we were on the local CBS affiliate last night and had a nice four minute uh, presentation about our, our campaign where we talked about, you know, the Robin Hood uh, and poverty wealth tax. And listen, I'm not beholden to anyone other than the people of Maryland. And um, I don't have any corporate PAC money. I don't expect that I'll have any super PAC money. And at the end of the day, to the extent that we could limit money in politics, think about it. I was not able to run for this role with a full-time job. So basically what that's telling your average American, your person in the PTA, your soccer coach, anyone that may have great ideas. You don't qualify. You can't That's run. what we're telling them. You got to be a millionaire or you got to be an elected official, right? Mm -hmm. uh, some of my, some of the candidates that I'm running against basically campaign on taxpayer time because they're going out to events under the guise of, you know, oh, this is an event, but, you know, their campaign signs are all over the place. So that yeah. shouldn't happen either. Um, so we really have to look at, uh, and I think it's an important thing, getting the money out of politics. It won't be one of my first priorities, but it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. Yeah. Well, we're pretty much up against the clock here, but I can't tell you how grateful I am to talk to such a serious person. Really, I mean it, Juan. A serious leader, serious person, very persuasive, making a strong argument to me about, all right, so probably an indicator that my show hasn't hit the big time yet. I didn't buy the full Zoom. We ran against the 40-minute. But Juan, I seriously can't thank you enough. Thank you for being here. Thank you for talking to me about why it's important to be a Democrat today, giving me a lot to think about. Even though we really talked about just the one issue, the one main issue, of uh, one of your core issues, it's good. It's a lot for me to chew on. Where can we go to support you, sir? Brian, I appreciate you letting me volunteer that. So my website is juanformaryland.com, and that's spelled uh, Juan, F-O-R, 
M-A-R-Y-L-A-N-D.com, right? The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, all my social media is at Juan for Maryland. So very easy. I ask folks to uh, jump on board the train because we're picking up steam and looking forward to giving the establishment a run for their money. It's very cool to see a person of your stature. And I really mean that doing it to talk to you. I wish you the best of luck. I'm going to make a contribution right now. I encourage everyone to do that too. Certainly going to tell my dad about you. I know he'll do that too. He'll be very happy to hear about this. So thank you for fighting for what you believe in. And I believe that you are fighting for uh, things that are good. So thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. That means a lot. Anything I could ever do for you, just let me know. Thank you, sir. Be well. Great podcast. Thank you, sir. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.